the law shows us like how much we need Christ. It shows us glimpses as to who Christ would be for us. And it gives us confidence that the life we have in Christ is everything we need. Right? It, it reminds us who Christ is. It shows us what Christ has done. It gives us confidence to live with Christ as our life. So when we read through the Old Testament law, guys, and I've, I've wrestled with about you know, what, what pace we'll go through it. We may cover a lot more than we will today in, in you know, subsequent weeks. But for the most part, I, we're just going to work through it. There's going to be some uncomfortable phrases in there that we're going to have to say, man, that does not feel right in English today. What, what were they getting at? But, but really, I, I started last week's sermon with the analogy. If you pictured this room that had all glass walls and a glass ceiling, most of us, when we come to Scripture, we, we tend to be, it's like looking into the room from one of the walls, okay? If we only look at the room, like if you stand up here with me and you look at the room facing this way, you, you get one perspective of the room. But there's things that I can't see that you guys can see because you're looking this way in the room. You know, I, I have no clue what goes on behind me up here. I trust John has the slides every Sunday, and usually he does unless I've forgotten to send them. But when you look at different sides of the room, it's, it's not trying to, to, to say that something else was wrong. We're, we're getting a more full picture of what's going on. And, and most of, at least for me growing up, my ideas about God were more founded in the New Testament because that was easier to read as a child. It was easier to interpret, you know, growing up. But the law that God has given to his people was a foundational part in teaching Israel what did it mean to be his people to begin with. And the God we read about in the New Testament is the same God that's giving the law to his people. So as we move through Exodus, guys, here's, here's what we're going to try to do each week. We're going to try to see what does the law tell the Israelites about what it means to be the people of God. Okay, so that, that's kind of part one. What does it tell us about life with God? What, what did that mean for Israel? We're going to try to make a little you know, parallels here and there to say, okay, how did we see that in Jesus? Right? Because Christ told us in the New Testament, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So Jesus is, however he's acting, however he's living, it's going to be consistent to what God is giving the people here. And then kind of from that picture, then we can talk about, okay, then, then what do we do with this? Because we have Christ. We're not living as people under the law, but we're seeing something there. We're getting a, a picture of it fulfilled in Christ. So then what do we do with it? That's, that's how I'm going to hopefully try to approach this each Sunday. Um, and I encourage you guys, I mean, this, this is... Uh, there's a lot of different directions we could take with this. I think this is consistent with the narrative of Exodus, but hey, I mean, we, we are learning and growing in this together. So we are in chapter 21 today. We're going to cover the first 32 verses, uh, and we'll start. Uh, I'll just begin reading verse 1. This is God talking to Moses. He says, Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or to the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. 
When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will point for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever sells a man or steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Uh, when, quarrel, when men are quarreling and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. When an ox gores a man or woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned, but is not kept in it, then it, and it kills a man or a woman, then the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to this same rule. If the ox scores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. Real quick, how, how many of you guys studied this passage in the last month or so in quiet time, right? Not, not one we tend to read through. Thank you for, for bearing with me and receiving the word of the Lord. God, we are grateful to come to you this morning to read parts of your word that, uh, God, are very difficult for us to deal with. Um, Father, there's things in there we definitely don't understand or can't comprehend. Uh, Father, there's things in there that at first glance just really don't, don't seem to fit in today. Um, Father, we, we are coming to your word humbly this morning. Father, we're not trying to fit what word you've given us into any particular box. God, we, we want to understand, you know, why were you giving this to the nation of Israel? Why, why did you see this fit to be kept as a testimony for us that we might understand and know who you are and, and know your son, Father, to be made right with you? Father, open, open our hearts, open our ears, open our eyes. God, remove all the distractions. May we be able to hear from you this morning uh, just what, 
what you were after as you're giving this to your people. In your holy name we pray, amen. So guys, the, the big picture and why this ties in well with, with uh, Mother's Day, why this ties in well with our worship, if you notice that the main overarching theme of all these laws is related to life. It's related specifically to valuing life. So our main point and what we're going to unpack as we work through this text is that living in God's restoration, which is going to kind of be the theme of the majority of the sermons after this, because we're now moving through the laws, having given the Messiah, Israel having been set free, learning to live with God, living in God's restoration leads us to value one another because God values his image in mankind. This is the direction we're going with this morning, and we see... In chapter, chapter 21, verse 1, these are the first laws that God has given right after the Ten Commandments. Remember, we, this was all the way back at the end of March, but chapter 20 was the Ten Commandments, and it was the laws about the altars. So it's God saying, this is how you are to be right with me, and this is how you are to make the sacrifices and things so that you can be right with me. Now God is kind of flipping the switch and saying, now I'm going to give you these practical laws governing how do you live. With me, And I think it is, it is fascinating that the very first set of laws God hands over to his people is he's teaching them how to value the life of one another. And he's teaching them what, what does this look like. And even more powerful, the very first life he teaches them to value in verses 1 through 6 and then again in verse 16 and again in verses 20 and 21 is the life of a slave. We see in verse 2 just a, a couple things about how God is teaching people to value his life. He says, look, slaves were to be freed after six years. So, so when God is talking about slavery here, this, this was never intended to be a permanent condition for someone. God did not create life you know, for the purpose of holding it captive forever he, or for us to hold it captive, period. So he, he says in verse 2, look, I, you are to have a natural rhythm of setting people free. He says in verse 16, likewise, anyone who's involved in forcing someone into slavery was to be put to death, as is anybody that came in possession of somebody that had been forced in, which almost seems a little unfair if you don't know. But God says, look, I don't want you guys to have anything to do with this, verse 16, because he says, look, it is an attempt to forcibly take part of my creation, and instead of Growing it to glorify me, you are forcing it to glorify yourself. He says, you have nothing, nothing to do with this. Verse 20, slaves were to be avenged for their loss of life, but not if they lived in verse 21. And I want to pause on this because when I read this this week, I went, that does not, that does not sound very good today, God. Why, why do you say on verse 21, do not avenge the life of a slave if he lives, for the slave is his money. That does not sit well with me in English. And so we, I had to dive into that a little bit this week and say, okay, what, what is really going on here? And, and guys, I, there are going to be moments when we get to the law and different verses in there that we should have these gut reactions of that. That doesn't sound quite right. What, what does all this mean? The Hebrew there, just the quick, the quick answer here. The Hebrew there is that the slave is the value of the owner. In English, we put the word money in there because it's, it's how we think about value in terms of, of money. But the, the Hebrew picture is that the slave is the value of his owner. And if you think about the context that all of this is coming in, it's talking about the value of life. 
Okay, so right here, it, these laws are not governing production. They're governing how you treat one another, how, how you treat life. Really, the Hebrew teaching is, is simply this. The value of the slave to its owner was in the life of the slave, not in its ability to produce something. And this is a consistent theme we're going to see throughout these verses. And guys, I, I would say, hey, we see this all throughout Scripture, that the value of a life is not measured by what it can or cannot produce or what it can and cannot do, but on the fact that it is life. It is, it is an image bearer. So the very first thing God does to his people, think about this, they were former slaves, right? They were living as slaves in Egypt. They, they know what it, what, how it felt to have been treated as a slave. The very first thing God does for his people is he says, you are to value this life. And the way you do this, not measured by production, but by the fact that it bears my image. And I think it's even cool then with that idea in mind, you look at verses three through six, you say, wow, so that value also extended to what the slave owned and to the slave's family. It was a value that God was placing on life. In verses 7 through 11, you see that God is also teaching his people how to redeem slaves. Again, same language. It's, it has nothing to do with whether the slave is produced enough to earn his freedom. It's the fact that we were not supposed to be holding God's life hostage, so we are to be valuing it. And it says in verse 8, Master's, are not to discard slaves. He actually uses the language of breaking faith. For one, in the Hebrew tradition, we don't really have much of a context for this. Breaking faith doesn't sound like that big of a deal, but breaking faith is the language of exiting a covenant, okay? You guys have heard me talk about how big a deal covenant is to God. For a master to break a faith by just discarding a slave as if it's nothing, this was a huge Huge, huge, strong punishment coming down from God. The, the Hebrew there means it's, it's acting and dealing treacherously with. This is not something God wants his people to mess with. Verse 8, it talks about how masters could redeem their slaves. And there's really only two things that God tells them to do. He says either set them totally free or bring them into your family. Treat them as a daughter if it's, if it's a slave for your son. Treat it as a wife if it is yours. So the, God is saying, look... To value this life, you either set it free or bring it into your family. There's no, no in-between here in these, these, pat, this, these verses. Verses 15 and 17, God expands the picture, and it goes out further, talking about now all of his creation. We're striking someone in verse 15 or cursing at somebody uh, in verse 17, and, and cursing, carrying with it the idea of, like, not just a cuss word, but, like, totally cutting off from one person. Either of these are against his law. And it's a, it's a picture of whether it's a physical assault on life or whether it's a verbal assault on life, it's an assault on life. And it's not something, God says, this is not in my image, so this will not be done by you if you are indeed my people. Verses 18 through 21, and then again in 28 to 31, he, he teaches his people to redeem when life is damaged, when life is lost, we redeem life. And he shows them this is what it looks like. And I think it's a very, very cool picture of the whole book 
of Exodus. So here in, in just these verses, God is teaching them if life is damaged or if life has been taken captive, if life is, is destroyed, here's how you redeem it. He's telling this to a nation of people that were in slavery and have now been free. Like he's, he's teaching them to redeem as he himself has been redeeming them. Verses 22 and 20, through 25, excuse me, you see that God also places a value, and, and this is where many Christians love to land, a value on the unborn children, but also a value on the pregnant mother, where he says, look, if, you are, if you're fighting, and it doesn't even involve a pregnant woman, but you somehow touch the pregnant woman, oh, this is not going to end well for you. There's, there's a penalties for, for not valuing either the life of the child or of the, mo the, the mother. All of the laws, all of these guys, they all fit together and tell a story of how God values life and how he is teaching his people, if you are going to be my people, there is not a life among you that is not to be valued. And we see the same testimony over and over again in Christ. When you think about the people that he called to be his disciples, some of the labels that culture would have given them, uh, well, they were by trade fishermen, uh, which was not the highest trade uh, on the list that you could be. It was, a, uh, it was a wonderful retirement hobby, but it was not a job that you wanted to have. Uh, some of them, some of his followers uh, were former prostitutes, not a group that most cultures would have wanted to associate with. Uh, others of them, they, they were Pharisee rejects. They were told by the uh, religious and the most educated that you're not worth it. Sorry, like you're just not smart enough, so we don't want to have anything to do with you. These are the people that Christ not, not only valued in the sense that he spent time with them, these are the ones he called to live life with him, church. What a high value of life that Jesus did not just associate with those on the outcast of society, but he brought them into his life. He lived daily with them. We see how he taught his disciples and the different miracles and things he performed that he did so because he had compassion on them. If you read through the Gospel of Luke, it is amazing to note how many times Jesus looks at crowds and has compassion on them. And then almost immediately after that statement, he performs some sort of miracle, almost to like put his compassion into action. He taught that loving kindness and compassion for those also included those that society said was not worth it. The parable of the Good Samaritan being a chief example there. That there was no one who was not worth the care of Christ. And then he demonstrated it in the biggest, grandest act of all on the cross. Of teaching of none of us who deserved his life, he gave it to us. So we learn, guys, from, from this section here, these laws, chapter 21 of Exodus, the same thing that we see in Christ. God values life. And to be the people of God, we are to value life in one another. We are to value one another as people. And this is it's one of our, our values here at New River Fellowship. And I think as we, as we hear this language, it's, it's healthy and it's right for us to ask the question, why? Okay, why does God value all of his created life so much? What is this to God? 
If you go back and read through the chapter with me, I think there's, there's one... It didn't stand out to me the first time I read it, but if, if, you, if you read it, and I'm not going to go back and reread the whole thing just for time's sake, but if, if you paid attention to the punishments that God gives for the law, they also reinforce this idea. So the first part of our main point, living in God's restoration leads us to value his creation. Why? The second part, because God values his image and mankind. And it's ironic that you, you get this idea from the punishments that God gives. But there are two different types of punishments throughout Exodus 21 for, for breaking God's law. They tend to either be ones of death or ones of restitution. Uh, in death, you see uh, verses 12 through 14, if you willfully take the life of one, somebody else, death. Verse 15, if you strike one's father or mother, or then curse them, verse 17, death. Verse 16, if you force someone into slavery or purchase somebody forced into slavery, death. Verse 23, taking the life of a pregnant mother or her child, death. Verse 28, verse 31, if an animal that you own takes the life of somebody else, like now we're getting really into the weeds, death. Verse 29, if somebody is, this is how big into the weeds we are. If you're negligent in guarding a reckless animal and it gets out and kills somebody, I, you almost think you read some like local town laws and you go there's a story behind why that one exists you can almost hear the story behind this one you had an animal it was wild it somehow got out it killed something death the other punishment being restitution verses 8 through 11 if a master was displeased with the slave he had to make restitution we said either by by setting them free or bringing them into his family verse 13 if you accidentally took the life of somebody you you, you were forgiven in the sense that you didn't have to be put to death, but you had to go to what was called a city of refuge, and you had to stay there for the rest of your life. So God still removed you from the company of his nation as a whole. Hey, verses 18, 19, if you struck someone but didn't kill them, you were expected to pay, make compensation for whatever lost life they experienced, and you were expected to take care of them until they were healed. I can imagine the... The physical violence probably went way down when you're supposed to not only just pay for whatever they lost, but also you had to take care of them the entire time. Verse 26 and 27, if one struck his slave and caused damage to the life, they had to set the slave free because they were not honoring the life in their slave. These two punishments, guys, the death and the restitution, why I harp on that this morning is because it goes back to a larger narrative we see all throughout Scripture. Okay, we saw it earlier in Exodus, in chapter 12, when God was setting his people free from Israel, he, they celebrated the Passover, right? And if you remember the Passover, they were to slaughter a lamb, they were to put the blood over the doorway and down the sides of their household, and they were to eat the meat together that night with their family. So the sacrifice was an act of death that made restitution for the people, so God could deliver them out of bondage to go be with him. That should sound a little familiar. We saw that God's reasoning behind why he wanted to deliver them in chapter 12, the way he did, comes all the way back in Exodus 3. He, he tells Moses when, when he says, Moses, I'm going to send you to free my people because they are my people and because I am their God. 
this, this covenant that God has with his people, that he, he values them because they are his. And we see, guys, all of this in context of the nation of Israel in Exodus, and we know today that this is to all of us in Christ. That God sees us as his creation, ones who, who bear his image, and he desires for us to be made right with him. The picture we are getting in the law this morning, guys, is that God, here has God made man. He has made man differently than anything else. He, he has made it special. He set it apart. He's teaching it what it means to be right with him. He knows that this, this nation, Israel, man is going to break apart from him. They're not going to follow this completely. And so the punishment for breaking apart is a punishment that requires death and requires restitution, a payment to be made. Okay, now what, what other story, what other narrative do you know from Scripture that seems to fit all of that? Guys, that, to me, that sounds a lot like who Jesus is and what he has done for us. That what we are seeing here in Exodus is just pointing us closer to the Messiah. Christ's death has stood in the place of our own because we have broken away from God and in our sin. Christ's death has taken the death that our sin rightfully deserves upon him. Christ's life was the restitution, his death making a, a payment on our behalf to bring us to be right with him. And guys, if, if you really want to dig deep in there, you see in verse 32 that the life of a, if an ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver. That may be a, a seemingly arbitrary number, but that is also the same amount that Christ himself was sold for by Judas, who, by the way, was breaking one of these laws by selling someone forcibly into slavery. So even here, Moses is including information that as we are seeing this, we're going, oh, this, this points us to Christ. That God values life, and he values life because it bears his image, and he's teaching it to Israel in the law, and he's pointing us to get this in Christ. So why, why do we pay attention to this this morning, okay? Why is it important for us to stand that living in God's restoration leads us to value his creation? Why should we value his creation just because it bears his image? There's two, two big points of conclusion I want to give to you guys, okay? The first one that we kind of saw earlier is because you and I, when we, when we tend to think about valuing something, I would, I would say this extends to more than just people, but the way we think about value is typically in terms of production, not image bearing, okay? Think about, again, think about the nation of Israel. As they're receiving the law, what's their history? What's their background, right? This is an entire nation of people coming out of slavery, 400 years of slavery, 400 years of being told that their value was measured by how many bricks they could make, okay? 
If they didn't make bricks, they weren't worthy of value. They'd been hearing for 400 years that their value was tied up in their ability to produce bricks. Now, as God is giving them his law, the very first thing he's addressing after he's been showing them who he is to his people, he says, now, now that you know who I am, now that you know that you are my people, let me tell you how I see you. Let me, let me tell you how, because I see you this way, let me tell you how you should see one another. You are so much more than brick makers. He doesn't even bring up bricks in this. He, and, and the way these laws are written, the people that they address, whether you were a slave or a master, whether you were male or female, whether you were adult or a child, you had value because you bore the creator's image. Nothing to do with whether you could produce bricks or not. Guys, it is, it is sin within us that teaches us to value people based on their production. And I, I never really put this together until I was reading this and I thought, well, if, if God's talking about image bearing, let me just go back and, and read Genesis on a whim because that talks about where he makes man his image. And, and I noticed something there I had never realized, okay? It's, it's, it's super cool, so I have to tell you this morning. Chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, God tells Adam it's not good for him to be alone. He forms Eve. He brings her to Adam. Adam gives her the name woman. It doesn't sound that deeply profound, but the Hebrew word for woman means opposite of man. And those of you who have been married would, would probably agree, yeah, uh, woman is the opposite of man. In a lot of ways, we are very different from one another. But the, the word doesn't mean opposite in the sense that like we fight against one another. It's opposite in the sense of completion, that God made male and female to complete, to be together, to, to round one another out, if you will. So the first time Adam sees Eve, he looks at her and he names her, not based off of what she's capable of doing, but literally who she is. She is one made, and together we bear the image of God, right? Genesis 3.20, Adam gives his wife the name Eve. Eve means life bearer, which sounds like a really good name, except life bearer really to, in the Hebrew meant life bringer into this world literally means child baby maker. So the second time after the fall, Adam looks at Eve and he doesn't name her based off of who she is. One made in the image of God who completes him, who makes him whole to bear the image of God. He looks at her now and says, this is what you are to do. Now Adam looks at Eve, not for who she is, but what she can do. And worse, by giving her the name Eve, he is now tied who she is to what she is capable of doing. And if you remember when God cast Adam and Eve out of the garden, the curse that he put on Eve was that it would be very difficult for her in childbirth. Adam values her based off of what she can do, and God says it's going to be really hard for her to do that. Can, can you see how valuing based off of production is very dangerous for us, church? It is not the way God intended. I think it is fascinating. The same author of Exodus is the author of Genesis, is Moses. So Moses is not just writing the law. He's writing the whole story of Israel, and he's, he's making this connection here. That is, God is teaching his people what it is to be his people. The first thing he does, 
I'm telling you who you are to me, and I'm telling you how you are to, to see and treat one another. And guys, the, the other point of application, and then we'll, we'll be done, why it is so dangerous for us to look and value people in terms of production is because production leads us to justify why we should not value someone, okay? I, I, didn't, I did not expect that. I thought, well, no, but the way you think about production, if you meet a quota or something, uh, then you get a reward, right? Like production should lead us to celebration when something is done, except that's, that's not the story Moses has told in Exodus. If, if you go back to chapter 1, you would expect to see uh, Israel in slavery making bricks, building the cities of Egypt, that once they're done, they would be celebrated, or they'd at least be given a break. And that's not what we're told. Every time the Israelites complete a job, we are told in chapter 1, they were demanded more. It was never enough. They made enough bricks. Egypt demanded them to build more. Chapter 1, verses 11 through 13. They grew in number. They were flourishing. Egypt tried to kill all the male babies. Verse Chapter 1, 15, 16. They made enough bricks. They asked for some time off to go worship God. Egypt says, no. In fact, what we're going to do is take away your raw materials and force you to keep making the same number of bricks. Chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. Moses shows three times how they were beaten and killed because they met their production value. Before in chapter 5, verse 13, 14, he shows they were beaten and killed for not meeting their production value. Guys, production is ne it's never enough, okay? If we have a standard where we value the lives of one another or the value of our own life based off of what we are able to do or to accomplish, there will always be a time where we will hit that point and it will never be enough. Somebody else will never be enough for you, or you will never be good enough for someone else, okay? This is the danger of valuing life for its production value. And it is the beauty that at the very beginning of God's law, he says, that's not how I see you. I teach you to value me because you bear my image. And everybody else I made also bears my image. So do not look at them as to what they're able to do or not do. Look at them the same way I look at you. If we are going to be people living in God's restoration, we, we value his creation because he values his image in mankind. So as we respond this morning, church, I, I just I want to I want to encourage you. Because this is, uh, I mean, maybe you're different from me. I, I really wrestle with this, okay? I cannot tell you the number of times in a week that mentally I, I am, I beat myself up for not being able to do what I expect should be, be able to do. Um, the last time Abigail and the kids went out of town, I had this list in my head of all the things I was going to do at the house while they were gone, like, you know, to, to serve them. Like, when, when, when everybody's gone and there's nothing in the house, then you can do a thorough deep cleaning because when you have two kids under the age of three, nothing stays clean. So I'm like, they're gone. I'm going to do everything. I get halfway through the list, and then, I then they come back, and I'm frustrated when they're there because I could not get everything done. A and how 
how much joy that robs me of time with my family because my first inclination is to be frustrated that I couldn't do what I thought I should be able to do instead of just excited to, as a husband and a father, serve them while they're gone and then love them as they're back. I mean, it is, it is a narrative that we all in our own ways wrestle with. And so, I, guys, I, I want to just ask you two questions for you to ponder as you go throughout this week, Okay. Who is it that you have a hard time valuing? And in what ways do you struggle valuing yourself? Okay, Because if we are seeing that this is the way God views his created image bearers, the way God views mankind, then this applies to us, the way we look at ourselves, and it applies to the way that we see one another. And I encourage you, just, just spend some time thinking about, okay, you know, we... We can start with the people that are different from us because that's typically where the value is hardest for us. So what, what about the way somebody thinks or the way somebody does something different than the way I would do it? Why is that hard for me to value? Okay, And then spend some time looking a little bit inward. All right, uh, when I fail to do something, how do I treat myself? Am, am, I, am I brutal? Am I, do I just beat myself up for not being able to do? I would even encourage you guys... When you tell yourself, man, you just failed at that, just stop and ask, okay, what's my standard? Right? I beat myself up for some standard of the list of things I feel like I should be able to do. Is, is that really how God sees me? We often judge ourselves on standards not, not of our God. And guys, why this, this value stuff matters is because if we start to see ourselves and others how God does, oh, Man, the world, wouldn't it look nice? If we start to understand why God cares so much about us, we start to realize, so the whole testimony of Scripture about a God that actually loves me and values me and is pursuing me and wants to draw me into life with him, that starts to make a little bit more sense. If we understand how God sees us, we understand, well, if that's really the way God sees me, I I would want to be in a relationship where I'm seen that way. I would want to give my life. I would want to serve. I would want to grow in faith with a God that sees me this way. Guys, it's important. It's so important. It's one of our core values here at New River Fellowship. I think it's number two. I think it's number two on our list. Reconciliation to God and others. We want to be right with God. That starts by knowing how he sees us. So as you think about these questions, as you receive this this morning, guys, let's join with me in prayer, and we will sing one more song of praise together. Lord God Almighty, thy understanding is unsearchable and infinite. Thy arm cannot be stayed. Thy agency extends through limitless space. All thy works hang on thy care. With thee, time is a present now. Holy is thy wisdom, thy power, thy mercy, thy ways, thy works. How can I stand before thee with my numberless and aggravated offenses? I have often loved darkness, observed lying vanities, forsaken thy given mercies, trampled underfoot thy beloved son, mocked thy providences, flattered thee with my lips, broken thy covenant. It is of thy compassion, God, that I am not consumed. Lead me to repentance and save me from despair. Let me come to thee renouncing, condemning, loathing myself, but hoping in the grace that flows even to the chief of sinners. 
that the cross may contemplate the evil of sin and abhor it. May I look on him whom I pierced as one slain for me and as one slain by me. May I never despise his death by fearing its efficacy for my salvation. And whatever cross I am required to bear, let me see him, Christ, carrying a heavier. Teach me in health to think of sickness, in the brightest hours to be ready for darkness, in life prepare me for death. Thus may my soul rest in thee, O immortal and transcendent one, revealed as thou art in the person and the work of thy Son, the friend of sinners, Jesus Christ.